Growth Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Travel Growth Podcast. I'm Tom McLaughlin, founder of SEO Travel, and this is where I speak to successful travel business leaders and dig into the successes, challenges, and learnings from their experiences over the years. So you, the listener, can take away actionable advice to enhance your own businesses and maybe even lives too. My guest today is Darren Byrne. Darren is the founder of Out of Office, a specialist LGBT travel company and owner of TravelGay.com, the world's biggest LGBT travel website. Before he became a travel business owner, he was a journalist for ITN for 10 years, and we dig into how the lessons and skills he learned in his first career have helped pave the way for success in his travel exploits. We also delve into the challenges of building a team and the benefits of diversity within that, how to navigate their world of investment and investors, and also how interviewing Janet Jackson remains his go-to reference point whenever he comes up against a new challenge. Darren's got a really unique perspective on how he's built the business, and there are lots of fantastic takeaways in this conversation that I'm sure you'll find useful. I really hope you enjoy it, and here's me talking to Darren Byrne. Darren, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, really looking forward to talking to you and finding out a bit more about your background and, and the background of the business and, and how you built it to where it is today. And, you know, from, from already talking to you a bit about this stuff, there's lots of, lots of exciting stuff in there and lots of good little nuggets that I'm, I'm sure people will find useful. So really looking forward to it. Um, to start, I thought let, we could go right back to the beginning and basically look at what first got you interested in in travel and, and when that was. Yeah, I think, I mean, travel is so inherent in every single one of us, I think. And I think, you know, just as a kid, uh, I, you know, I wanted to become an airline pilot. I loved going on planes. That whole thing when you're a kid and you're like, oh my God, I'm going on holiday. It's just the most exciting thing ever. Even if it's to like some really kind of basic resort in Europe, like going on a plane was always massive for me. I still remember my parents when I was a kid uh, convincing me that we were getting on a propeller plane to Jersey, I think, and they convinced me that you had to pedal on propeller planes. <laughs> and uh, I, I got on the plane and I said to my parents, where are the pedals then? And they were like, ha ha ha, pulled one on you. But um, even, I just have such vivid memories of, you know, travelling as a kid, like maybe only once a year and probably only within Europe, but just such a, a, a big deal. And then I travelled a fair bit in my job before this when I was a journalist and so I got to see a lot of different places both in the UK and abroad um, and then yeah I mean I suppose uh, the idea for me starting a travel business was well I always wanted to have my own business I thought what do I like and enjoy and what will entertain me and you know there are very few things that I think that can entertain you non-stop and uh, travel is just so inherent as I said that, that that was one of the industries that I thought well let's let's give that a go. Nice. How, how old were you then when uh, when you were getting on a propeller plane and getting ready to pedal? I think I must have been about six years old, something like that. And yeah, I was I was I was convinced, convinced nice. that, and, and terrified as well, absolutely terrified that we would end up having to pedal if I didn't pedal hard enough that uh, we wouldn't get to Jersey. Nice. Just wondering at what point I can pull that one with my kids. Uh, to, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, Definitely a good one. <laughs> so uh, I guess go, going from that, so obviously that's from a very early stage, like you say, and and clearly instilled uh, you know a passion for it. What, what was your journey for from kind of getting to the point of 
starting the business from, I guess, you know, when we're all going through education and you're kind of just on the standard path. How, how did that happen? You touched on your journalism there. Like what, what happened when you were, you know, when you were at school? Did, did, you, did, you, did you have dreams to start a business to be an entrepreneur? Did you have dreams to be a journalist? What? No, I don't think so. And I think I'd, I'd love to say that there was some grand master plan, but there never is or rarely is, I would imagine. I'm sure people who have vocational uh, careers like being a doctor or something like that probably have, have thought about that. I've never really understood how people could know at age 16, 17 what they want to do for their rest of their life. I certainly didn't. And um, for me, it was really, uh, as with most things in my life, it was just kind of serendipitous and uh, it just fell into place by accident, really. So uh, as you mentioned, now I was a journalist for 10 years uh, and that was my 20s and then got to my 30s. And only at that point did I think, right, I want to start my own business now. And I think I think starting your own business any earlier than than like kind of late 20s is, I mean, obviously people do do it, but I wouldn't have had enough life experience to know where to start or how to manage people or how to at least pretend you know what you're doing, which I think most of us do most of the time. Uh, and anyone who says otherwise is definitely lying. Um, but, uh, you know, I think for, for me, it was age 17, really not knowing what I wanted to do. And I walked into the careers office at school and there were some work experience placements on on uh, on show and one of them was for Sky News and I thought oh that sounds fun that's like I had no idea what what it was going to entail but that sounds fun it was like you know a brand and something I'd heard of and knew about and I'd done a bit of writing and actually I remember being kind of age 12 and doing the school newspaper and uh, you know writing for the, the the school magazine and stuff like that so that had always been you know inherent in my life but I'd never really thought I could turn that into a career and actually end up going into television rather than print and I'm kind of glad I did because I think I probably wouldn't have necessarily succeeded in print because you've got to be really top caliber and you've got to be writing you know the most colorful flowery uh, writing possible which which I'm good at writing but I wasn't certainly you know top top tier like that and so I saw this work experience placement for Sky News and was like wow that sounds really interesting and my did they throw me in the deep end they put me on overnight shifts on this three-week placement um, they did all you know they did all sorts of things and, and then I ended up going back for after I finished school I went back for three months on a proper job for three months before I went traveling on my gap year and um, so I earned some money and then again threw me right in the deep end they had me uh, on air one day being interviewed about the dangers of teenagers in internet chat rooms which uh, was uh, it was in line with the story that was happening and they put me on air had me interviewed had me in these chat rooms trying to find all these dirty old men to to, to say nasty things to me and try and get me to uh, you know reveal how decrepit not decrepit how uh, horrible the uh, the internet is for kids and teenagers and um, that was fun and then you know I, I they also made me um, work in a hospital for a week or two as a cleaner undercover uh, so I was armed with a hidden camera and I went to uh, a hospital that shan't be named and we did an expose on how um, hospitals were not at that time at least very clean places and you know you'd have cleaners cleaning up MRSA wards and then going and delivering uh, Vera in the next ward her tea and cake and whatever without really having a chance to clean their hands in between so we did all of this cool stuff which aged you know 18 years old I mean that's money can't buy experiences really and yeah. and I was just like I love this. I loved every single second of it. So you did. So you did that. So you d did you say that was just at the start of a gap year 
and then what you went and then you went travelling off the back of that. Yeah, so um, did maybe three months at Sky, earned some money there, which you know gave me a foot up, put into being able to travel. So I went over to Australia, stopped in Thailand for a bit on the way, went to Australia, lived in Sydney for three months, then bought a camper van and drove around Australia in this 1976 camper van which you know, is a story in itself. It's like, you know, it, luckily I hadn't seen the film, film Wolf Creek at that point, but, um, but had I, I probably wouldn't have done it because we broke down in the middle of the outback numerous times in this horrible old camper van. Um, but that's, you know, at, at that age, what, 18, 19, there's, there's such formative experiences that, you know, and you, you live to tell the tale. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here now. I'm glad that that's, that's over, but it was such a cool experience at that time. And, um, you know, mobile phones weren't really that big then I had a mobile phone but there was no signal and you you know didn't have the distractions of social media and whatsapp and instagram and you know I had a proper camera to take photos and I'd you know every you know week or so I'd have to go into an internet cafe and drag and drop them from my memory card into like you just don't do that anymore the good right? old days. All, yeah, yeah yeah exactly all that fun stuff and you know I, I still look back on those traveling experiences and we end up going around the south pacific and america for a bit and I look back on those travel experiences and, you know, God, I would love to do all that again. And, uh, you know, that I think probably gave me a bit of a bug for, for, for more uh, adventurous travel, should we say. You know, I, I jumped out of a plane, did a skydive, things that I would never. And I still probably wouldn't do that now. Yeah. And the people I was traveling with were kind of like, come on, let's do it. And I was like, well, I can't check it out here. I'm going to have to do it. And so I did all of that stuff that, you you know, at that age, you just say yes to. Yeah. There's, there's something about being in that environment, isn't there? I think where, like you say, you just you just get sucked into like everyone's doing this stuff. So what's you know it's the normal thing to do, and then it's only when you look back, I think, and you get home and you start speaking to your mates who are have all just been at uni doing normal things, and it's like you jumped out of a plane. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you know all of those things are again down to the, that that life experience that I think uh, make people more more rounded really and I think you can use those experiences and I certainly use experiences from my journalism career in my everyday life now and also in my uh, job as a, a founder and a managing director I certainly pull on a lot of little elements from the last years of traveling and, and, and working in journalism to to you know, shape what I do now in business. Yeah, I t- yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I on my gap year, I went to I went to Honduras and I and I taught in a school there, and yeah, it, you know, it made me realise I was never meant to be a teacher, and uh, you know, but but all that backdrop, you know, like you said, it's the formative years, and you, you do things, you have all these experience that 10, 15 years later, suddenly I'm I'm kind of drawing upon those those memories and, and things that I learned there. Um, so yeah, I totally agree. I, I think anyone anyone who I know who's gone and done something like that, you can, you know, you can you can kind of see that there's a bit of life experience there from from doing it. Yeah, for um, sure. So so you so you went away. I guess you came back and then what went to uni as as most people did after the gap year. But it wasn't it wasn't a journalism degree that you were coming back to. No, I um, opted for a business and economics degree and, um, you know, hindsight's a valuable thing, right? And I didn't know at that time uh, that it was uh, going to, that I was going to end up starting a business. I, having said that, and not to um, disparage anyone doing a degree or any degrees out there, but I don't think I've used very much of that degree in my day-to-day life. I think you know, university is an important stepping stone. Um, and I think also 
I'm a very big believer in you. You've always got to do these things to get to the next stage. So like GCSEs you do, right? But as soon as you've done GCSEs and you move on to A-levels or further education, GCSEs are irrelevant and those results don't matter. And same with A-levels. As soon as you've done them, you move on to something else. And that was university for me. And as soon as I've done a university degree, my A-levels don't matter. Not that I'm, like I said, disparaging any of those things. I think they're all very important and give you a really good set of life skills and uh, a baseline. But... Uh, you, you always got to look forward and look at the next thing. And again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that stage. And I'd already done a bit of journalism, obviously, with this work experience. I didn't think I needed to go and do a journalism degree because I'm a very big believer in learning on the job. I think there's a lot you can learn on the job, far more than you can in the classroom. And actually, all the journalism degrees out there are very theory driven they're taught by journalists who haven't been in a newsroom for 20 years themselves they used to be journalists and I'm like well hold a minute I can get all that experience on the job so I chose a business and economics degree so I thought that's a rounded and generic enough degree for me to do a lot of things with it after it but actually um, while I was at uni I was still working at ITN at that point uh, freelancing um, doing a few shifts a week, working there in school holidays, you know, and it was great because I was earning money. So I was, you know, paying my way through uni whilst, again, having money can't buy experiences, which for that age, you know, I've just felt so privileged. Yeah, I, I to- again, I totally agree. I think the, so interestingly, I did a, an English, an English degree and I had my sights on being a journalist and I only subsequently kind of realised as I was coming out of it that, yeah, basically I should have been a T-boy in the newsroom when I was 16 and that would have been the best route if I wanted to be a journalist. So I, you know, I kind of gave up on that at that point and went into PR and then that's what kind of stumbled into the SEO. It's funny though, there's, 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 I think the only one useful thing that people who had done a journalism degree had that I didn't have was the law side of things, like knowing media law really well. I always felt a bit out of my depth there. But equally, again, learning on the job, being a sponge and learning that from the people around you. You know, I was working with alongside Trevor McDonald and people like that like if you can learn from those people who've been in that industry and are absolutely iconic for years then you know you're, you're not doing too badly I don't think yeah so then you came so you went through you went through the university experience and what came out and then like you say if you've been working at ITN did that just kind of naturally flow into what you did post post uni yeah I mean I, again it just never felt like a job I didn't feel like I was getting paid to do something that never felt like a job and like what's a better job than that you know and I I, I, was, I was very young and I was very kind of naive and even I've been through uni I still look back now and think how how um, naive I was about just the world and life and it taught me a lot and you know you you're at that age and you try you know you're really young and suddenly everyone else in the newsroom's like who's this young kid who's this young upstart and you have to prove yourself you know that you can't sit there and and and, and think well you know i'm gonna be able to carry on with this because guess what there are hundreds of people trying to get into journalism there were, i knew there were hundreds of people who wanted that job and um it is about being in the right place at the right time but i i, I feel very lucky and you have to work hard at it and yeah so i just kind of carried on after uh, university, was freelancing, got a full-time job there and kind of worked my way up through the ranks. But as I said, you know, I was the good thing about working at a place like ITN as well versus somewhere like the BBC is you are a big fish in a small pond, whereas at the BBC you would be kind of lost in the just chasm that is the BBC, whereas at ITN, very small company in comparison to the BBC. And so you end up um, 
being a big fish and doing things that you know you wouldn't get an opportunity to do like if you know there are five jobs at the bbc they'd be spread out across five different people five jobs at itn all to one person because there's just not enough resources to get stuff done and, uh, and that that's still given me kind of dying out for life uh on that on those experiences to be i honest. was i was going to say tell us about some of the highlights then just a couple of a couple of things that jump out for that from that experience um, i think uh, there's a few that the 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 ultimate highlight uh, was getting to interview Janet Jackson because she's my absolute idol. I mean, I, I went and saw Janet Jackson in concert when I was 12 years old. I think I my dad said to me, um, do you want to go to a concert with your friends? And I said, yes. And he rang up and found out a list of who was on. I had no idea of anyone. I think I'd heard one Janet Jackson song. And I went to that and I was just transformed and mesmerized by it because it was this big spectacle kind of concert that don't really happen now and um so i went to that and then when i was at itn there was this opportunity that came i remember getting i remember vividly getting the email into my inbox uh, at work from some pr company and it wasn't it wasn't addressed to me specifically it was just addressed to the itv planning desk or whatever right and it said that there was an opportunity to interview janet jackson for her new movie that she had out um and it would be next week in london and i'm like oh my god like that moment i was like how am i going to make this happen because it has to happen and itv would never have normally covered something like that they'd never have covered um you know a, a, a movie and a celebrity like janet but i was like i need to go and do that interview that like there's no way i can't not do that interview so i went into the deputy editor's office of itn and i was like Hi there, I just want to let you know, this thing's come in, I know we're not going to cover it, but I'm going to go and do it. And I was quite chummy with him and he was like, yeah, fine, go, crack on. Like he knew that that would be for me like a big deal, right? So nice. uh, so I, I managed to interview Janet Jackson twice in one day, actually, once at uh, the Dorchester and once on the red carpet somewhere. Um, and it's funny because I still use that experience as my benchmark for everything. Even in like business now, I say to myself, look, if you can interview Janet Jackson, you can deal with that difficult client or you can deal with that uh, HR issue or you can deal with that financial problem. Like I use that as my benchmark, which sounds ludicrous, but it's so cathartic to have something like that as a benchmark because you're like, well, and, and I felt like I kind of um, done myself a bit of disservice because I was, well, I was what, 24 years old and I'm like, well, I've already done my life highlight now and I'm 24. <laughs> now what? Like, you know, now what? What am I going to do now? And uh, but it's it, it's useful to have that as a as a benchmark. Yeah, you mentioned when we were talking before the kind of frame of reference and and that you know I think which is what you're getting out there the whole kind of what's the worst that could happen kind of thing that you mentioned you you live by is is and that's it if you've been in those those I guess those high pressure scenarios where you've interviewed Gordon Brown or you've interviewed interviewed Janet Jackson or anything like that like you say whenever another challenge comes along. It, yeah, having that attitude stands in good stead. I think it's really, really useful advice for anyone at any stage of life and in any career to have some perspective. And that perspective can be anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, that you feel like you hit your career pinnacle or life pinnacle at 24. It can be a really small nugget from your childhood or from life that you just use as a benchmark just to say when you know we all have stressful days we all have anxious moments we all have moments where we don't know how we're going to deal with a situation whether that be personal or professional but having that benchmark and saying do you know what if i could do that or i could get through that day then i can i can deal with this and it's really hard to see that perspective sometimes but um but it but it is always there for everyone i think yeah yeah so so you had this successful 
journalism career, it sounds like you were, you know, everything was going very nicely. What what caused you to decide to take a different path? Look, that was my 20s uh, and I was kind of fast approaching 30, uh, which obviously, again, at that age, you're like, oh my God, I'm approaching 30. Like, you know, now I'm like, oh, I'm approaching 40. <laughs> like, um, but, uh, but at that age, I was approaching 30 and I just knew that I had done everything I needed to do in journalism. Like there was nothing more that I wanted to achieve or, you know, nothing more that would um, necessarily uh tantalize the taste buds so i thought you know let's think about what else i can do and again it was a little bit of a whim i'm quite an impulsive person um and you know i I thought well i would quite like to start my own business or at least give that a go or also to be candid need to make some money because journalism was never going to pay me um a, a salary that you know i was happy with basically um, and so uh, I looked at options and it, again, it all, all, as most things do in life, fell into place pretty accidentally. Um, my dad has always said to me, if it's the right decision at the time, then you can never regret it later down the line. And I always think that's another really useful piece of advice because um, once you make a decision, guess what? Every decision you make isn't going to be spot on. Right? But if you made that decision at the time, then you made it for a reason. You've got to remember that you made it for a reason based on the circumstances at the time or the things that are happening to you in your life at the time. And so, again, I'm not, I don't really regret decisions I've made in the past because I made them for a very good reason at the time. And at that time... Uh, I was looking to get into business and um, in terms of the transition I found uh, I was on a plane somewhere I can't remember where I was going and in British Airways magazine there was a competition looking for new travel startup ideas Um, and I was like oh okay and so I literally just back of a fag packet idea again that impulsive character in me was like oh I can do this I've got an idea and I submitted this idea to this competition for uh, saying that LGBT travel was really underrepresented and there was huge opportunity and a huge addressable market there um, and ended up getting from, I think the, the, the guys who put the competition in British Airways magazine and were looking to seed fund a, a new startup, they received several thousand entries from it and um, whittled it down and uh, I'm the result of that basically. So um, uh, yeah. And did and uh, so tell us more about the process for that. And so yeah, you saw it in the you saw it in the magazine on the fly. What subsequently? I guess you submitted a proposal, and then and then that got whittled down. Did you have to go and pitch it? Was it a Dragon's Den kind of scenario? Like very much. And Dragon's Den was at like the height of its fame then, right? Like everyone was watching Dragon's Den, and so I very much was very conscious that that was um, something I was going to need to do. So I did, I, I put, I mean, I, I think I must have put in a lot more effort to the final pitch than the other people because, um, you know, when I do something, I really commit to it. So I did this amazing PowerPoint, like I even mocked up a website, like had a working website. It was called pinkplans.com, I think was the original name. Because I was like, well, what are we going to call it? It needs to have some kind of cool name, alliteration. I was like, I hate, hate using pink to identify with LGBT. But I was like, I need this alliteration. It needs to roll off the tongue. Right, let's pitch this. So we, I found this Romanian web designer for like $200 who designed me who I'm still working with today interestingly um, who um, who 
did a logo for me, did a mock-up website, I did all of that. So I put, really put my heart and soul into it and went and pitched this. And the two guys who um, are my business partners uh, run uh, companies called YourGolfTravelAndSpaBreaks.com, really big travel companies. And I remember going in there, and obviously golf was where they started their journey. And I said to them, uh, about 6% of the UK population play golf. And then I said, and about six to eight percent of the UK population are LGBT. And I said, six percent of people who play golf don't all go on golfing holidays. But six to eight percent of the UK population who are LGBT all go on holiday multiple times a year. And therefore, if you look at the addressable market compared to what they're ordering, and then you know they're a 60, 70 million pound turnover business at that point. Um, I said, it's a bigger audience. Not to mention that we've got, you know. An international audience, and uh, and and that's I think that you know from, from from their perspective they were like well look there's there's money in this and they also believed in me and the market and the fact that my premise which was you know there's not enough representation in the LGBT market in travel um, which surprises a lot of people because a lot of people think well travel's always been really gay friendly and you know but I'm like well show me where. Show me which travel agency has a picture of a gay couple in their brochure. Show me which travel agency is talking about lesbian honeymoons and which destinations are safe and not safe for travellers. And um, and there weren't any, and there still really are. I mean, the high street and the mainstream might put a kind of token image in here or there, but they, they, they still don't really. And we're in 2021 now, and there's still not really uh, proper representation and diversity in, in, in that segment. And I think uh, for, for us, that's where we've kind of come into our own and, and you know it's been a difficult but really exciting journey over the last few years and again I don't feel like I'm doing a job it doesn't feel like work which is all you know if, if I ever have children like the one thing I would love for them to say is they don't feel like they've worked a day in their life right that would be the best thing ever and if you can find a job which feels like a hobby and a passion then go do it yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, yeah. I I think the well yeah. I mean I mean I totally agree. It's it's such a hard thing. I I, I find myself getting caught in between the two things of uh, sort of the follow your passion argument and because I think sometimes it gets taken where people almost think oh well I'm you know I like football so I just have to do something to do with football and that's and they just kind of the tunnel vision goes on and and it's and it's kind of to the detriment whereas. I think the way you're talking about it there of almost like you need to find the thing that you are doing for work that doesn't feel like the job. Because I, I know plenty of people who have kind of gone down the route of following the passion and then actually because it's then their job, they almost like lose the they lose the love for it. Um, whereas it's got to be an accident. Yeah, it's got to be the other way around. It's got to be you're it's doing the thing accident. and you feel like you are. You know, you just like you say, you just fall into it, and it's like, oh no, I, I don't feel like I'm going to work it. I just love what love what I do. Um, if you just if you can discover something that you are good at and you didn't necessarily know was a passion, then that's good. I think you're right. If it's if it's a complete passion, you absolutely love it. Then you love that because that's part of your personal identity. It doesn't mean it should be part of your professional identity, yeah. right? Because then you don't have a difference between the two. And I think it's really important to, you know, I wouldn't, I remember uh, when I was a journalist, like feeling very pressured to read the Sunday papers on a Sunday before I went into work on a Monday. And that was, that wasn't a nice feeling. Um, but I did it 
because I felt it would help me with the job. But it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't, there wasn't the kind of passion to, and now I read the Sunday papers on a Sunday and I'm like, oh, I'm enjoying them, right? Because I don't have to read them. So there's always, there's always a balance. You're never going to, look, you're never going to have it 100% right. But if you can feel like you're enjoying your job most days, um, then that's that's a pretty good position to be in, right? Because most people don't, let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so yeah, this, so obviously the, you know, you kind of win, win the competition and I guess the wheels just then get in motion. So take us, tell us a bit more background about out of office then and how you go from that moment where you kind of get the, you know, you, you, you win the competition to, you know, to where we are today and kind of how, how things look. Yeah, so um, I think the most difficult thing was quitting my job at ITN. I was so like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, And again, it's that I think is the point when my dad said to me, if it's the right decision now, then just do it. Don't regret it. You can always come back into journalism if you need to, right? And I was like, oh yeah, that's it. You've hit the nail on the head there. You, you give, And also... Even no matter how old you are, having someone else give you that reassurance that the decision you're making is the right decision is very helpful. So it's always really good if you're not sure about a decision to ask other people for their opinion. And so did that, handed in my notice and went into work with the guys at Your Golf Travel and completely naively, really not knowing what to expect and not having formulated an idea, not really just say LGBT travel. That was that was the thing, right? And um, so I spent a good three to six months just in their business, just kind of roaming, really, and just being a bit of a sponge again. And I think that's really important. I didn't go rushing into anything thinking I know it all because I didn't. I didn't know how travel worked. I didn't know how contracts work. I didn't know about bed banks and all the things that come with running a travel company and the HR and the finance. So I was just a bit of a sponge again for six months. And I think that was really helpful to have that breathing space to give me an opportunity to formulate the idea a bit further. And we we kind of narrowed it down to looking at the luxury segment because it was very clear to me that if we were going to go into kind of the Grand Canaria uh, type holiday market, there was no money in it. They're like, you know, you can't, you can't sit there and sell seven nights in Grand Canaria and expect to suddenly, unless you're doing volume, you're not going to make any money, unfortunately. So we, we, we looked at the luxury market we looked at how we would roll that out. I remember getting the name was the hardest thing, right? Like, we, what are we going to call this business? Like, what do, like, we're not calling it Pink Plans, that's for sure, right? Like, that was a working title. It was crap. So let's not let's not do that. But what are we going to call it? And and I remember getting a pressure from my business partner saying, "Come on, Dad, we've got to come up with a name for this thing now. This project." I'm like, "Oh my god!" And I remember I was at, a, at my birthday one year. I had a bunch of friends, maybe like 15, 20 friends at my parents' house. And um, I made them all sit down and I gave them all a piece of paper. I said, I want you all to give me three names for what you would call an LGBT travel company. And I made every single one of them write through. And we were getting rainbow this, pink that. I'm like, no, 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 this is not it. This is not the this is not the right brand. It's got to be exude luxury. It's got and I left that weekend and still didn't have a name. And I was like, this is this is bad. Like, if you can't name the company, how the hell are you going to start it and run it? And um, I remember, like, again, a week later, my business partner saying, right, Darren, what, what, what's, what have you thought of? And I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm meant to be a creative. I'm meant to, and, 
And I just messaged all my friends in an absolute panic, being like, come on, guys, I need some help with this. I need... And one of my um, girlfriends from uni, her boyfriend, um, just said, what about out of office? And it was like a eureka moment. Like, you know, I imagine that's how Einstein felt when he discovered whatever. And um, uh, it was a eureka moment. I was like, it's so clever. How do we set you out of office to go on holiday? It's got the word out in, as in coming out. It's got that double, some people will get it, some people won't get it. And loads of people haven't got it. Loads of people are like, why is it called out of office? I'm like, well, what do you do when you go on holiday? Oh, yeah, I set me out of office. And I'm like, and if you're gay, what do you do when you come out? Oh, yeah, okay. And they, they then get it. But, and for people who don't need it explained to, they're like, that is ingenious. And for people who need it explained to afterwards, they're like, wow, that's that's clever. Yeah. And I remember, I think we, we, you know, we had to pay a decent amount of money to get that domain name. It was, it was, it was sitting there part, but, you know, it was a good domain name to have. Um, and so... We did that, and yeah, and then really the, the, the it all kind of spiraled from there. So uh, again, I was working with my Romanian web designer to get um, uh, the templates in place, like like writing up all these sample itineraries. And this was just me; it was only me at this stage. There was no support, no help, really. I mean, I say that there was help from a finance person who could get me, you know, get his bank account set up and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the idea, it was, it was me. And for the first six months, it was still just me. So we were running this company that, again, was looking a lot bigger than it actually was. And it was just me. And I remember when we hired our first employee and we were like, you know, right now is the time to start scaling. That was such a great moment to be able to do that because you're like, okay, now it's going somewhere. And, it's real. And then it's kind of just built. Yeah, it's real. It's real. And then and then you get into all the... And I was completely naive again. I like went into this forgot, I was like, yeah, I want my own business. I want to start my own business. I didn't think, oh, you're going to have to manage people and recruit people and find people. And with all of that comes all the challenges that anyone who's ever managed anyone will know, which is around personalities and uh, drama and issues of uh, hiring staff. And, you know, it's, that's not easy. And I still don't find it easy, um, but uh, it's a necessity. And I, I, I definitely wasn't prepared for that. So anyone who's thinking about going into business, make sure you're prepared for that side of things. Because I, again bit of my impulsive side just kind of ran in thought let's see if this works and um and thankfully it has but it hasn't been a a smooth journey as with any business in any startup yeah the hiring thing's interesting i've heard i've I've heard you talking about that a little bit in some other interviews and things that i've I've read so what how do you go about that what's your what's your process and who how do you go about finding the right kind of person um We've refined it over time and it's still, you know, it's still not perfect. You will always still hire people who aren't right for your organization. And it's, you've got to be okay with that, firstly, because, you know, an interview is a terrible way to hire someone. If I could just rip up the, if, if I could interview someone by getting them in for doing the job for a week and seeing how they gelled with the rest of the team and how they did on the job. That would be the best way to recruit someone. But unfortunately, you can't do that and the world isn't built to allow you to do that. Um, but interviewing someone face to face is is really difficult, and I think we, you know, over time we've refined what what makes a good uh, salesperson or what makes a good content person in our business. Um, but you don't always get it right. I remember I hired one guy in the room, and he was so passionate about LGBT. He's like, I can't believe there's a company that you know does LGBT travel. This is just the best thing ever, and he turned out great. And then we hired a girl maybe six months later who said exactly the same thing 
and she turned out to be one of our worst ever hires. And I was like, I was like, oh, she has given me all the same signs as the first guy. This is great. Let's get her in. And she just didn't work out. And and again, you've got to be okay with that. And I, if I sat here and told you, yeah, I know exactly what I need, I'd be lying. You, you, you have to just um, give it your best shot. And you know, yes, you need to assess people in the right way. We've become a lot better now at trying to identify people's personality types as well. So. Not through, not through very detailed psychometric testing, but at least through some kind of um, broad picture stuff around who someone is, what their belief system is, how they fit in a team. And actually, um, one of the founders of Stonewall, the LGBT charity, who now runs his own diversity consulting, does a lot about diversity and getting the right team and having a diverse workforce in place. He uh, gave me a great piece of advice once, which was, you don't always hire the best person for the job, you hire the best person for the team. Yeah. And that, I think, is really useful advice when it comes to recruiting because you could, look, there's no point having three Darrens on the staff or three Toms on the staff because they'll all think in exactly the same way, they'll all act in the same way, they'll all clash in the same way. Actually, you want people who think differently from their colleagues, who do things in different ways to their colleagues because people will learn and people will be sponges again. And I think that, 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 that line about not hiring the best person for the job, it doesn't mean you turn away really good people, but you work out where and how you can fit them in your team. And it might not always be in the original place that you had. I remember one person who applied for a job with us, applied to working out of office as a sales consultant. And at that point, we were just bringing on our second business, Travel Gay. And I was like, hold on a minute, they would be much better suited to that role and in that job. And when I had a chat with her, she was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's even better than what I was hoping to apply for. And it's about spotting those opportunities and where people fit within your business and within the team. But you can't you can't sit here and say, I've got a magic bullet. I know exactly what the right person we're looking for is because people are people and people are complex and different. And someone who presents themselves in one way might have um, a bad day and then you suddenly see a whole different side. And then I think the other thing is about, and this is where I think the LGBT side of things is helpful because we talk about diversity and inclusivity a lot. It's about creating that and fostering that in a workplace. Mm. Like we we are a supportive environment. People have bad days. People have bad sales months. You can't fire someone because they've had one bad sales month, right? You have to develop and nurture them. And if you can create that convivial environment where people feel safe and secure, they're much more likely to perform longer term, I think, than, than if you create a, 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 an environment of tyranny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the uh, so a couple of interesting things. There. I think like on the diversity side of things, like I don't, sometimes when you see that playing out, and people almost feel like it's a quota that they need to fill, and I don't think it gets talked about enough. The sort of the benefit to the business that comes from that, exactly as you were saying, like different different viewpoints, particularly if you're in more of a kind of creative business. Like people having more diverse backgrounds will bring more things to the table, and you'll 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 offer a better product. Like it'll be better for your business. It's not just tick ticks and boxes. Um, and then you mentioned on the yeah the psychometric testing thing as well. That's something we've actually doing started doing a bit of as well. There's a good tool called Crystal, I think it's called, uh, which is like a free free tool where you can get a really good breakdown of you know of of, of what people are like. And I think again going back to what you were saying all of these different strands that you have, it's kind of how can you collect as much information as possible in different environments to, to try and make a choice. So that obviously gives you some interesting data. Yeah, you have one-on-one -on -one interviews. We actually run a, like a group interview before as the first stage, um, which is very much about 
you know, it's, it's so we to try and get exposure to as many candidates as we can in a timely fashion so that, you know, we can see what they're like in the room with people and how they interact and all those kind of things. We, you know, it's not like a, uh, you know, a horrible kind of who shouts the loudest wins or there's not really any sort of competitive element to it. It's literally just, we just want people in the room to see how they, how they feel as part of the team. And it's amazing when you go through that process, how, it's more about deselecting, to be honest, and it's amazing how effective it is when just people walk through the door and you know immediately like they are potentially good or they're definitely not right. And by the time you get to the one-on-one phase, you've got a better picture of kind of what, what they're like. So when you do start delving into the details of their skills and experience and all that kind of thing, at least you know, or you've got a, you've got a good concept of what they're like as a person um, to, to, you know, to kind of fall back on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think what's going to be interesting, actually, in a post-pandemic world, obviously, we had to uh, reduce the size of our team over the pandemic. And as things um, get back to normal and we're recruiting again, obviously, we'll go back to some of the people that we let go um, during the pandemic. But it also gives us an opportunity to reset. There's going to be a lot of talent in the marketplace. And I think it gives us an opportunity to look at what we did wrong before or what we didn't necessarily get fully right in some of our hires previously. And just to kind of have an opportunity to, to, to reset on that and look at, again, how we build things for the team. And I think the challenge we felt as a, as a business as we were growing so quickly at, at some point is that we were not seeing enough good people through the door. And so we probably weren't necessarily hiring the best people at that time. And that was a detriment to the business and a detriment to the team. And I think actually going forward, now we're kind of probably growing again, again, more gradually, hopefully, than kind of rapid, 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 rapid growth um, means that we probably will just reassess the way that we fit people within a team and how we how we how we get them into the building uh, business. Yeah, nice. Um, so you mentioned there, you, you mentioned acquiring Travel Gay. So just tell us a little bit more about the thinking behind that and what Travel Gay is and how that complements what, what you're doing already. Yeah, well, hilariously, Pink Plans, when I pitched it, was very much a travelgay.com-esque model. And Travel Gay is uh, much more of a kind of community listing website platform that lists gay bars, gay clubs, gay-friendly hotels, things to do, all of that kind of stuff around the world, right? And, and Travel Gay was this website that was built by this really small team of three guys, two in Thailand, one in the UK. I think it started in 2011, so well before I came into this, into this sphere. And um, uh, it just did really well in its niche. So it started as TravelGayThailand.com, then it became Travel Gay Asia. Then they added Travel Gay Europe. And at that point, I met the guy in the UK who founded that business. And he uh, was running it as a hobby business, really. He, he was he, it was successful commercially, but he, he was slightly older and kind of looking for what he could do next. And I was like, this is great. And it built up all this traffic, like so much traffic millions and millions and millions of unique visitors and page views a year and um, I thought well with that kind of traffic we could do some really fun stuff for out of office and initially I thought right travel gay is great but if we can access travel gay just to find new audience members and new customers for out of office that would 
in its own right be great. So I had this conversation with him and I said, look, I'm really interested in your business. And he, I, I kind of said, have you thought about this, 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 this? And I'm a bit of an idea factory and came up with like 10 new ideas for him. Like, oh, that's a really good idea. Oh, that's a really good idea. And in the end, long story short, we ended up buying and acquiring the business. He, he um, uh, sold it to us because he really liked what my vision was for that business. And there I am suddenly having just started out of office, what, two years before, thinking, oh, now I've now got a whole other business. But it was such an opportunity that we couldn't turn it down. And again, we've now taken Travel Gay Europe and Travel Gay Asia, turned it all into TravelGay.com. And in the first, I think the, we bought it in May 2018. And in the first month, we hired four interns from the universities around Sussex. And a lot of them were paid for by various university schemes and placements. And we kind of ran a little bit of a content sweatshop, if I'm honest with you. We were like, right, we're now going to add the USA, South America, Australia, South Africa. Go, 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 go. And we literally like added all this content, all researched in-house in the space of eight weeks. And suddenly, TravelGay.com now covered all four corners of the globe. And since then, we've, you know, we're now, re- we now ranked number one in America for every search term under the sun. Uh, and you know the traffic has just grown exponentially and it's all organic we don't pay to acquire a single user on that website which is you know i mean most businesses would kill for something like that right it's yeah. it's all organic traffic and it's because it's you know you've got really unique content and i think there are about 17 18000 pages on there and like you can't build a website someone said to me i remember we were, looking, we were talking to some investors at one point and they said well what's stopping someone else just chucking five million quid at this and and uh, building a complete uh, competitor to travel care so well firstly the name secondly the legacy we've been doing this well, this this site's been running for 10 years now right so it's got a lot of seo value a lot of great keyword research behind it and it ranks number one for almost every organic term and secondly thirdly you'd be there working bloody hard for a bloody long time to try and build that much content People just don't do it, do they? That, that's the thing is like, I, I think in a, you know, in the world of the internet, you could basically say that about pretty much any model or any website, you could be like, oh, well, what if someone just replicates this thing? But the reality is that people don't get off their arse and go and do something and they don't have the, you know, they don't have it in their legs to kind of see something through that far and get through. It's those years of work. Days. It's years of work. And you can't replicate that with money, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could try. But it you would still be need someone, ins- like you still need people and a team and all the challenges that you've, you've touched on already to, yeah, to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, you only have to look at, um, uh, I won't name names, but there are some mainstream companies out there that are very big in the content world uh, in travel and have really kind of tried to SEO or have SEO their website well. Um, but you look at the reviews on Glassdoor of, you know, what their employees think about them and you're like, you wouldn't want to work there. It yeah. sounds like a horrible, horrible place to work. And actually, you know, that, that won't stand them well in the long run. No, agree, agree. So it, 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 I think that um, it's a really interesting little nugget of, of like a model to get immediately in front of a, a big audience, your big potential audience. So you've got one business that is selling something completely different and then thinking, is there a website out there that already has my audience kind of captured that are consistently going to them and that I think the idea of buying 
you know, buying a blog is something we talked about with clients a little bit sometimes. And, you know, the, like exactly that question of tr rather than trying to pedal so hard yourself and the number of years that it will take to sort of build up that momentum, especially when you're a, a, a brand uh, rather than a, business, a company commercially, rather than a, you know, an editorial site that is just quite happily getting links and, and all those kind of things that are much easier. There's definitely a strong case, I think, where if there's money in the bank to you know to go and just acquire something that has that has a really good audience I mean, and there's depending on the kind of business you are I know a lot of people we work with they're like destination specialists and they send people to you know Canada or Morocco or Australia or wherever and if you can find a blog that is essentially like a you know a guide to that particular location that ranks really well then I think there's a lot to be said for the concept of go and buy that blog and then use it as the doorway that feeds them into, into your brand. For sure. I think um, the one thing I'd caution about that, though, is don't expect that to change things overnight. So, you know, even now, there's so much more we could be doing to drive traffic from a travel gate to out of office. And we haven't, we haven't got around to doing it. The list is a long list to get through, but there's so much more we could be doing. And, and actually, I was a bit naive again I thought oh, this is great we'll, uh, we'll instantly overnight improve out of office by linking to out of office from every page on travel gate because of the domain authority or because you know and so we you know the, the the first thing we did when we bought travel gate was in the very very top put part of out of office.com and had a link to out of office.com and I thought guys sit back and watch these inquiries roll in and they didn't and I was like oh okay well okay don't panic don't panic don't panic but um yeah, we. I mean, we've we've been through some funny funny moments with Travelgate when we launched the website. Obviously, it was Travelgate Asia, Travelgate Europe. My initial thing was to combine them all into Travelgate.com, and I was like, right, come on, like, come on, guys, we're gonna do this. We did all the SEO research, we did like you know the migration research, working about 301 redirects, all of the technical stuff we needed to do. Switch Travelgate Europe. So we'll leave Travelgate Asia as it is for now. We'll switch Travelgate Europe to Travelgate.com. Did that. Overnight, we lost 80% of the traffic. And I was, and I remember very, very clearly, I was at a friend's wedding in Ibiza, and um, we'd done it two days before I went, and everything was fine. And I got, I got there, and I started looking at the analytics on my phone. I was like, what? I bet you were the only, the only person at the wedding looking at Google Analytics. Uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was. And I was doing a reading at that wedding, and I was so stressed, I remember it now, thinking, how am I going to deal with it? And I was on the phone, we were on the, we were on the phone to all these SEO specialists and like, um, like we spoke to some people in America and like we were doing all three, like why have we lost so much traffic? And one of them spotted something that none of us had spotted, which is travelgay.com was a domain that the business owned, but was just sitting on it, wasn't doing anything with it. Years ago, it used to be a porn site. And so it was blocked by every search engine under the sun as adult content. Mm -hmm. And it was blocked by Google Safe Search. And we're there, I was like, oh my God. And you just get that kind of stuff you just can't predict, right? You can't see. And only by trying it did we realize we lost 80% of the traffic overnight. I nearly thought, oh my God, I'm just gonna resign now because <laughs> like, what have I done? I've taken on this business and lost all this traffic. And um, thankfully, thankfully, we uh, we did all the right things at that point. We're contacting all the right people. We were like submitting ourselves to blacklists to get ourselves off these blacklists. I remember being at an airport 
and you know your airport you're going through a firewall and it says this this uh, website is ranked under adult or something like that so it's like emailing all of these like web sense people and all this kind of stuff to try and get it taken off and but that was i mean that just one of the few hairy moments we've had in business but thankfully we recovered and actually we bounced back stronger in the end because we unified everything in one domain but it was a a hairy experience nice yeah no one likes a migration it, it, there's ter- terrifying at the best of times the, t- t- tell us a little bit more um about your experience of of working with investors darren then so like I, and i've heard you talk a little bit about about venture capital as well in, in some of your other interviews so if, if you is that something i think that was a little while ago is that something you've gone down the route of like how how do you feel about all that that side of things is it something you'd recommend to people yeah, what are your, what are your um, So, um, I've got a lot of thoughts on this because we've been through a lot of different um, conversations. I think it's always really important to keep conversations going and keep options open because you never know when you might have that chance meeting or come across someone who just uh, you can't say no to. But up until now, we haven't taken on any external investment apart from the initial seed funding from my business partners. And that's for very good reason. Obviously, we don't want to dilute uh, our business if we don't need to. We also want to get both the businesses to a really comfortable, profitable position uh, whereby we can then look at scaling them further once we've got them there. And that, that's a bit alien to the venture capital world. The venture capital world really wants you to see, yeah, you grow the top line, grow the top line. Don't worry about the bottom line. Well, Unfortunately, if I don't worry about the bottom line as a, a small business and an entrepreneur, I don't have a business. Right? I can't keep chucking money at this. I personally can't afford to. And unless I'm diluting down and going and raising all this extra VC from places, um, it's hard to do that. And, and and I would love to say that on day one, we could have like gone and raised loads of VC and these businesses could be far bigger than they are already. And I'm sure that would have been the case. But would I have retained control? Would I have enjoyed it as much? Would I be able to build a profitable business? I don't know. And yes, I might. You know, you might. You might have been able to um, build a business that is worth X. But I mean, some of the valuations you're seeing out there at the moment for some tech companies are quite frankly ludicrous, and they are not sustainable. And guess who the people are who suffer at the end of it? It's Joe Bloggs who decides after an IPO to come in and buy some shares in this company they've heard like loads of stuff about and actually the only people who are benefiting are the private equity or VCs that were invested in it right who built all this hype around this brand and actually if you look at the sales in some of these tech brands you look at the sales figures and you look at the bottom lines you're like how is that business worth that much and obviously it is worth that much because people are willing to pay that much for it but it doesn't sit very well with me um, and you know I'm <laughs> ask me again if I had a business that was worth uh, 500 million pounds Tom because uh, I might feel differently but um, but I don't think I could sit there hand and heart and say I built a good business just by taking on more and more and more VC money um, and 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 kind of hoping for the best yeah there's a there's a great book by Rand Fishkin called Loss and Founder and he started a he started an SEO uh, like software business and got a load of a load of VC money and uh, tells the Tells a harrowing tale of uh, of his experience of going of going through that. I, I think you know. I don't know if it's the cautious Yorkshireman in me or what, but I, I think I've you know I kind of all the things you're saying there resonate with me. Where it's kind of like I like the idea of being in control of it and kind of 
doing it in a sustainable way so not trying to get ahead of yourself and almost like trip it over because you try to move too too fast too soon um and yeah the the general concept of obviously there's lots of businesses out there where they need they need investment and i think it's a you know if they've got lots of expensive overheads or product or whatever that they need to they need to do then 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 it, there's not really another way where we're in a good position that we can get away without it and uh yeah i like it i like it that way <laughs> I, do, I also don't see you know you see all the you're like yes oh great you've got a fantastic office and you've got all of these nice posh coffee machines but like that doesn't drive your bottom line where where where's your revenue growth coming from where's your sales coming from and that's a obviously a bit of a simplistic view but don't forget for every vc out there um 10 you know investments they make they know one will come good and they know that one will be okay and that the other eight will just tank and die so yeah. you know do you really want to be i don't want to risk my business for um for, for any of those uh, vcs to who might 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 think well hold on a minute out of these other eight businesses they're better than darren's business so let's just sack off darren's business because that's my life that's my livelihood that's my future and hopefully my retirement pot so you know i i i'm, I'm a bit it's funny, I said I was impulsive, but I'm also a bit risk averse when it comes to giving up too much control um, to, to other people. Obviously, if the deal is right and there's a really good value proposition for why we need to take on additional money to achieve certain milestones or certain goals, then absolutely we'll, we'll have that conversation. But I'd rather go and borrow the money from the bank um, and do it that way. Uh, knowing that I've got a really good value proposition where I can pay that money back over X amount of time, um, then 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 necessarily scale it. But but having said that, Travel Gay has got the absolute potential to be world domineering to the level of something like Grinder, uh, a gay dating app. And I think you know we will get there in due course. But again, I don't want to run before I can walk. We've just gone through a pandemic. I want to re-establish and resettle the business after that pandemic really focus on profitability because once i've focused and proven that we can be a really really profitable business which we are and can be then i can look at all the options of scaling and and uh and, and growing the business tell, tell us about the some i guess like the most effective or potentially ineffective marketing strategies that you've that you've used so obviously the business launched what 20 2016 so you know, you've helped it grow relatively quickly in a, you know, just a few years. What, what, what's worked really well? Is there anything you've done that didn't, didn't, didn't work at all? Done lots of things that didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, I look at, well, I, I, I did it just this morning, actually. I was looking at our Google AdWords and looking at our Facebook ad account. And I look at how much money we spent on those two, two platforms over the course of five years. And I'm like, I could have bought several houses with this. <laughs> I'm like, that is terrifying, right? When you actually draw it down for and And in the early days, we didn't have very good mechanisms of tracking that return on investment. We were just punting, punting, punting. And we were seeing inquiries coming in from Google Ads or Facebook. And some of them were really good and a lot of them were really crap. Um, but we didn't know which ones were then ultimately going through to making bookings. And we didn't have a very good model to, to look at that kind of closed loop and um, we've definitely spent a lot of money on those platforms which has been money down the drain and we learned very quickly not very quickly but we learned we learn now um, that every single time and i'm not just saying this because you're asking me the question tom but every single time organic inquiries 
are hands down the best for our business. When you look at, yes, we might get a bit of conversion rate on number of visits to number of inquiries when you look at things through paid media. But in terms of ones that actually ultimately led, end up in bookings and money, this is in the out-of-office side of the business, um, bookings and money, it's always the organic stuff. Because someone has searched for best gay honeymoon destinations. They're actively searching for that stuff, right? And yes, they can be doing that on Google AdWords. But we're also, for every one click we're getting, we're getting 10 that, or 15 that don't convert uh, and don't lead to an inquiry. And suddenly and that adds up. It really adds up. Like Our cost per inquiry in the early days was far too prohibitive for us to scale a business that way. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think there's definitely... Um... You know, AdWords, I think, is getting increasingly challenging. You know, there's especially, again, like harking back to the, the VC conversation, like people who have got investment behind them, a lot of a lot of the goal of what they're doing is just brand awareness. So they're all, I know of businesses that are making a loss on their AdWords, but they don't care because they just, their longer term goal is just to become the go-to brand. So when you're a smaller business and you're up against people who aren't even bothered about making a profit, it just drives that cost per click up, and you know it becomes unsustainable as, as a way of as a way of getting people in. And also, I don't I don't believe. I mean, look, I'm going to say this because I'm a founder, but I don't believe that any business should be spending money if there's not a return on investment. And I don't believe this. I understand the brand awareness argument, but guess what? That is some individual in a marketing department in a really big company, and it's not their own money. And they're going back to their boss, and they're saying to their boss, "Look, we've done all this amazing stuff." If I sliced and diced my analytics or my AdWords, I could find good stories in there 100 times over. It doesn't mean it's the actual story or it's the actual picture. And actually, when it's your own money invested in the business, which it is for me, and I'm still across every single bit of the detail, suddenly you're like, well, it's not worth spending money there. But I guarantee those companies, those really big companies, if someone was really granular, or a shareholder, or someone who's a major stakeholder came in and they'd be like, why are we spending that money just for brand words? We've, we've got a brand, our brand is everywhere. Like we've got, we're, we're a multi-million pound company. Like I, I, so I don't subscribe to um, those, those companies that are spending money for, without a return on investment. Having said that, we've done plenty of stuff that hasn't returned on investment. Uh, and you know, we, we, we like to get our brand out there on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. But again, there's less, far less intent there when someone is searching on Facebook or seeing an ad on Facebook than um, than on Google. And interestingly, yes, we can target people far more specifically for our demographic on Facebook, which is great. So if we, we, we want to target a campaign about gay honeymoons, for example, we're doing it in three ways. We're doing the organic gay honeymoon keywords, we're doing the Google paid word, AdWord keywords, and we're doing Facebook but Facebook, whilst we know we're getting to gay people, it's still really hard to know you're getting to a gay person who's actively at that point looking for a honeymoon, right? So there's a lot of wasted money there as well. And you know, the benefit of having a website like Travel Gay is it allows us to use that audience to fine-tune our marketing across both brands to make sure we've got a really good sample size of people to target. But I, yeah, I, I think there's a massive challenge both for Facebook and Google in the years to come for how they continue, and especially with some of the privacy issues that Apple is raising um, in their new iOS versions. I think there are some real challenges that paid media has uh, in the years to come for how they prove to brands, especially small businesses like mine, that it's worth the money spending it. Because I know we've wasted a lot of money. And if I really boiled it down, 
we uh, haven't necessarily made money in some of the campaigns we, we've we've run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, with everything, it's like, you know, I encourage people, it's very much like it's worth testing things that, you know, you never know off the back of what someone else has done, whether that'll be the right thing to do for you. And until you go and test it, you won't know. And I guess having it in your plan that some of those things won't work, but it's knowing when to pull the plug and say, okay, that hasn't worked. Let's not, let's not just keep flogging a dead horse. Like this is, this is not the right thing. And actually the pandemic has given us a really good opportunity to reset there because as our business was growing really fast, and the team was growing really fast, I felt very pressured to have to generate more and more and more inquiries. Right? You generate more and more inquiries, which leads to more and more business, which leads to more conversions, which leads to more money. Right? That's the, the, the baseline logical thinking behind a, a marketing strategy for us. But actually with the pandemic, when you say, hold on a minute, turn everything off, stop, take stop. And over the last few months, as we started to resurrect our paid advertising and we're getting much 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 more affordable cost for inquiries because fewer people are advertising right now which has been great we've been able to do a lot more testing a lot more testing with smaller sample sizes smaller budgets which we wouldn't have been able to do in normal business as usual time and actually that's been a a little bit of a saving grace over the last few months because our cost per inquiry has plummeted which is great Um, our organic inquiries have gone up because the people that are looking are finding us um, and so, yeah, we, we feel a lot more confident now about what to spend and when to spend rather than trying to chase our tail and grow a business by chucking more and more and more money at it, which isn't necessarily the right way to generate more business and more, more, more revenue. What, what about your, obviously, your journalism background? I imagine that's been a big help in kind of getting you out there and PR and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I love an interview, Tom, as you can <laughs> as you can tell. But no, I mean, look, yeah, I, I've got a few good contacts. And actually, um, it doesn't stop anyone trying to get out there, though. If you, you don't have to have had a journalism background. Like, you just have to be in the right place at the right time. So, yes, I have Laura Koonsberg's phone number. And yes, I WhatsApp Laura on the day of uh, issues going, like when I was having to lay off loads of staff saying, Laura, like, and she's like, can we use you as a case study? I said, yes. So look, that kind of stuff is priceless. And, you know, I'm a total geek. And I remember lying in bed watching the BBC News at 10 that night with the Google Analytics on my phone, watching like the live numbers come in on, just seeing the website traffic on out of office go from like six people who were on it. And then Laura Koonsberg does a little video of out of office and stuff in her piece. It went up to like 1,500 people on the website within seconds. And I was like, wow. boom. Does it? But that doesn't mean those 1,500 people are either our target audience or are relevant or are going to inquire or going to convert. I, we could put one booking down to that piece specifically because I said, I saw you on BBC News. I really wanted to support a small business. So we one, one booking we can put down there. So it doesn't mean it's actually therefore that useful. That is brand awareness, right? That is, okay, we're seeping into people's minds and it's not costing us anything. That is good brand awareness, I would say, because it's not costing you anything, but you're seeping into people's minds. And don't believe that you always need this super duper PR agency to do all this stuff for you. Like, again, it's about connecting with the right people on LinkedIn, dropping them a message, not being afraid to drop someone a message either or an email because yes, they might ignore it, but you might land on their desk at exactly the right time 
for what you know. And just don't <laughs> don't quote me on this, but some journalists are really lazy. They want stuff to land on their desk, right? They 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 would rather you come to them with a story than them go and find that story. And therefore, if you are, and I know that from having been on the receiving end of hundreds and thousands of PR pitches by PR people for years. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say he's a lazy journalist. Though. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, but yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I think anyone can PR themselves and their brand. And yes, I've been very vocal, obviously, over the course of the pandemic about the challenges we've faced as a small business or as a travel business or accessing certain government schemes. And I, I do that because I, I think it's important to let other people and other businesses know they're not alone and that they, that you're going through it. And I really don't believe in this whole bravado smoke and mirrors thing of saying everything's hunky-dory. Everything's not hunky-dory all the time, right? Running a business is bloody hard work. It's exhausting. It's challenging. It's also really rewarding. Uh, but if, if I sat here and said, you know, everything's been peachy, like, you know, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be, and I wouldn't feel authentic. And I think if you can be authentic in business, then it's going to stand you in a much better stead longer term than people who are bullshitting their way around stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I get going just kind of touching back on some of the PR the PR stuff. I think one of the things that we preach to people is the benefit of. So you talked about the kind of spike of people coming in. I guess the kind of trying to do it in a way that gets you the benefit of getting links that then support your SEO performance. And, you know, when, when we're doing things with people, there's always that angle of if you can go and get good coverage places, yeah, that initial coverage and people seeing you is great. But like you said, doesn't necessarily or it quite rarely, in fact, leads to people finding your site and then booking a, booking a holiday. But if you approach it in a sense of, I want to get that coverage and get that brand awareness, but I get a link, then it helps you rank better for your phrases in Google. And again, going back to what you were saying earlier of organic being a great source for you, that's what's kind of builds up as the sustainable return of that of that kind of coverage. And uh, yeah, uh, again, I know from our conversations already that you've you know you've had a lot of a lot of success from from that side of things. And whether it's travel gay or out of office, um, that working really well. The uh, have you got any? Because I think this is a you've got a very interesting angle on this. Is obviously with with your journalism background. So have you got any sort of quick tips you would give to people? You know, small travel businesses who are trying to get some PR coverage. You know, even if it's just three, four, five bits of coverage that you know can make a massive difference on their performance from a from a website and an organic point of view. What what would you what would you suggest that they they do? I think people need to get away from thinking about the holy grail being getting in the Telegraph or the Times travel section or things like that. I've never. I think we've been in once or twice, and I think if we were in there twenty times, it doesn't mean that people would suddenly be going to our website to look at stuff, right? Yes, it's a great for a vanity project to say you've been in the Sunday Times travel section, but does it necessarily deliver results? If you're running a travel business and the only thing that you care about is the vanity stuff, then you shouldn't be running it. You should care about the results, the bottom line, the top line, growing the business, right? What, what does it translate to in numbers? And um, from a PR perspective, people and, and a lot of PR agencies out there, because I know because I've spoken to someone, I haven't spent a penny with any of them, um, say, oh, we can get you, you know, that we know the Sunday Times travel ads. I'm like, well, I can find his name and send him an email if I've got a really good story. So, you know, don't spend money on things like that. Um, I'm not, again, I'm not here to promote you or what you do in any way, but, you know, SEO is definitely worth investing in because, um, you know, from a 
organic inbound link from a domain authority perspective. In fact, only this morning I was looking at things and the keyword gay vacations, when you search from US Google, we never used to be on page one. We're now in position two on page one for that keyword um, from just some of the work we've done over the last few years of really kind of build really specific keyword rich landing pages on our site. And it's much better to invest in that kind of stuff than than to, to pay a PR agency. You're going to get a much better return on investment. I think as well, as I said before, don't be afraid to be a bit ballsy. Reach out to like you know uh, someone really big in the world of TV or whatever. Send them an email. Send them a tweet. Send them a DM. Follow them on Twitter. All of that kind of stuff. I've I've got so many comments and stories into national newspapers or online publications just by tweeting at the journalist who's writing about it. So I got a whole double page feature in the Sunday Times over the pandemic talking about the struggles we were having to access the C-Bill scheme. Um, and the only reason I got that, they came and took a big photo of me. My, my picture, my mum and dad have got it like, print, like, it's like this big picture of me and double page spread of the Sunday Times. And they took it down on Brighton Beach. And the only reason I got that piece of coverage because, because I tweeted at the journalist who'd written a story about C-Bills the week before. Had I not done that, we wouldn't have got that piece of coverage. That piece of coverage didn't actually make a difference to my business from a bottom line side of things. But again, it is branding, it is brand awareness, but I didn't pay for it. And I wouldn't have been happy if I had paid money for that piece and it had been in the Sunday Times. If I can do it for free, why not? But if you've paid money for it and it doesn't return on it, if you've paid a grand retainer to a PR agency to, to deliver X, Y, Z, and it doesn't return that grand back to you in some shape or form that you can track them, what's the point in doing it, frankly? And I think a lot of companies probably could be making more money by focusing on that. Yeah, the point, the point of uh, looking at different different sort of shoulder niches or smaller publications is a really good one and like you say people just get kind of enamored with these you know top four or five publications that they're desperate to be featured in and, and you know to a kind of forgetting of, of everything else whereas there is there are so many again to kind of touch on the seo value you get from pr if you can go and get you could go and get 10 15 20 bits of coverage ignoring all the big nationals that are massively influential uh, from that point of view. And again, just to reinforce the point you're making of driving bookings, you know, we've had coverage for people in great places in The Guardian and all these, you know, like really prominent links in really relevant stories. And you look at then the traffic that comes through that kind of that kind of coverage and it's minimal. Like it, it just people that's just not how people kind of people who are reading that story don't click on all the links within the story. They read it and then they just go on to the next story and read the next story. Um, so it's it's kind of doing it in a way that you get that value in a sort of long-term sustainable way. Um, and as But like you say, thinking about the, the bottom line and how, how to do that best. I, one, one last thing on this front is, I guess in terms of a sort of story angle, is there anything you've thought of as particularly successful? Because I think one of the things people get bogged down in a bit is this idea of, I need someone to write about my business. And, and they almost sort of are saying, oh, just here's my business, go and write about it. Or here's this holiday I have, go and write about it. Is, it, is there, are there any sort of angles or sort of story approaches that you would recommend that, that have worked for you or historically that, that you've, you've received well on the other side of it? I mean, um, the question you should always ask yourself is why? Why would they write about that? What is unique about your business? And so what if you've got a unique business? It doesn't 
just suddenly give you access to being written about in a national newspaper. There are hundreds and thousands of great businesses out there that all do unique things and you don't see them get written about every single day. So it is about, and I'm not saying that in a harsh way, I'm just saying that in a matter of fact, that's just the reality, right? So buck up your ideas, mate, type thing. Um, but actually, if you take a step back and think about why someone would write about you, that will really help you formulate the reasons um, for, for getting your name out there. So why would someone write about us? Well, yes, sometimes for us it is about our niche. It's about the fact that we cater to LGBT travel. But actually, more often than not, my business has been mentioned because of me or a quote that I have given on something completely unrelated. So the C-bill scheme or you know the furlough scheme or the reality of making staff redundant. Now, that all sounds negative, but it's still got my brand out there. And it's still got my brand to people that go, oh, I didn't know there was a company that did LGBT travel. The story is not about LGBT travel at all. It's about something completely different. But people now, they still say it's an LGBT travel company. So, you know, they still make reference to it. You know, only yesterday I was on Times Radio talking about um, uh, my hopes for uh, what would be announced in the roadmap uh, that the, the, the government announced. And actually, um, at the beginning, the introduction was uh, Darren Byrne, founder and managing director of the world's largest LGBT travel brands, outofoffice.com and travelgay.com. Now, just that one line, for anyone who was listening, um, who didn't know those brands existed, they now know those brands exist. And they may never see our brands again, but they may, in six months' time, stumble across us on a Facebook advert, or stumble across us somewhere else, or stumble across us because another piece of content. And then they go, oh, hold on a minute, I've heard of this brand, because I've heard of this brand before, I trust it more. I instantly trust this brand more because I've seen it somewhere reputable. Whether and, and, and that can be as reputable as Facebook. If you if you've paid money to advertise on Facebook, you instantly are improving your reputation because people think, well, they're they're spending money on advertising. So they must be a more credible business. And actually, something I it sounds flippant, but it's really not. You've always got to look bigger than you are. So when it was just me on the phones for out of office for six months, my name was Luke. My name wasn't Darren. People rang up and they spoke to Luke. No one ever got to speak to Darren, right? And again, it was about building that perception that we were a bigger brand than we are. We do it now, like we do it now. We, we, you know, we're now sizable brands, but we're still punching above our weight. And we always, I always want to do that. I always want to give that perception we're much bigger than we actually are. And um, you know, that is, you know, we're doing similar things to what we're doing on this call. We're doing interviews at the moment with really influential people. I interviewed Stephen Fry last week, um, some really cool names who are giving our brand credibility. So think about how you can do things in different ways. We've launched the Travel Gay podcast now. Now, look, whether that will work or not, I don't know. Whether the Travel Gay podcast will get thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners over time, I don't know. I also don't care, actually. What I care about is that our brand is out there in another format, giving us more credibility, giving us more opportunities to reach our niche audience, which ultimately should, hopefully, turn into more results from a revenue perspective, right? You've just got to try these things, and if they don't work, they don't work. But if you don't try them, you'll, you'll never know. Yeah, I found I found you when I, in my research in uh, on a, an interview on a like a yeah venture capital type site uh, into being interviewed about that. So like you say, you, there's there's so many sort of shoulder topics around what you do that you can use to get to get um, to get coverage. And the more you think about that, the better. The better and don't forget, your customers are everywhere, right? My customers 
aren't searching for gay travel. They happen to be gay and they happen to work in finance, in banking, in law firms, in whatever. They, they, and if you can get to them in any way or they read about you from a completely different topic, that doesn't mean that that means they're still going to find out about your business. Don't think that because you deal with safari holidays, you only need to target keywords around safaris or be in every safari publication. Because guess what? I would love to go on a safari holiday, but I'm not reading any publications about safaris in detail. I'm probably going to read an article in the Times, which happens to mention a safari company that is up and coming, um, that has accessed some new VC and it's in the Sunday Times business section. That's where I'm going to read about it. From a personal perspective, Darren, what, what qualities do you think you've got that have contributed to your, to your success where, and, and where, did they, where did they come from? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I don't think I'm a bit, I think I'm a big navel gazer when it comes to thinking about uh, my own personal qualities. Not to say that I, you know, don't do a kind of bit of self-development here and there, but I don't sit there and try and overanalyze myself. I guess um, I'm a good communicator, um, which helps from every level of business, whether that is when you're talking to staff, when you're talking to clients, when you're talking to journalists, when you're talking to other business, when you're negotiating contracts. I think that's really important. I think, harking back to earlier, I just don't care about a lot of stuff in terms of like I just don't overanalyze things I just don't think too much about stuff and having a benchmark in your life and not worrying about stuff is important I think that's that's helped me I mean if, if I sat there and worried about every person I um, have an interaction with on a daily basis I'd be exhausted myself there's just no point overanalyzing it it's either gonna work something either gonna work or isn't gonna work and uh, again, I'm not saying that flippantly. I don't go into a, a staff meeting and suddenly just make it up on the spot. I obviously give stuff due consideration beforehand, but I'd be lying if I said that, you know, every single meeting I ever have is really well planned out and thought about. I just am much better thinking on my feet and responding and interacting and building rapport with people based on the circumstances at the time and I think that's important you've got to have a strategy you've got to have a, 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 a overall direction of travel but um, you're going to punctuate that with lots of stuff that you um, that you make up as you go along as well I think yeah you mentioned you're a bit of an ideas machine how do you sort of navigate that with keeping focus on you know the core set of things that you that you're doing I'm the idea factory and my team are the stability. I think that's the reality. I think without my team, I, it, it would be um, a lot messier than it is. My team are really strong. They're really hardworking. They know their jobs inside out. They know their jobs better than me. I've got people who are better at customer service than I am at dealing with angry clients or a customer that's frustrated. Like I've got um, uh, team members who are better at uh, filling in a CMS than me. I've got team members who are better at picking up the phone than me. And actually, you want to surround yourself with those people because, again, I don't get too involved. In, I said earlier, I get involved in the detail of analytics. There are some things I do get involved in. And I'm, a, I'm absolutely a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And I really like that about myself. I really like that I could turn my hand to just about anything. And I might not know it as well as the next person, but I know enough to be able to challenge the people who know a lot. 
uh, to be able to say, hold on a minute, have you thought about doing it that way? Or why, why, why are you doing it that way? Or, or and, you know, and actually, there's nothing wrong with challenging people because if people are good at their job, they should have a very good uh, reason for why they're doing it in, in a particular way. And um, yeah, I, I like that I can know a lot about, sorry, a little about a lot rather than a lot about a little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think coming at it from a, you know, our side and, you know, when I'm talking to the team about things, you know, I tell them to embrace the clients who are challenging because I think it, it you know, it sort of pushes you to make what we do better. And if you have a client who is like that, then, you know, generally it does force you to think again. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's trying to sort of use that sort of experience and almost, is there a way of sort of re recreating it even when you don't have a challenging client to make sure that you're always pushing, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of, of what you do. Um, you, again, like one of the things, again, one of the, the things when I was doing my research, I saw you mentioning was that you, you know, a lot of your ideas come up when you're sort of using meditation, mindfulness, that kind of thing. Is, is there anything, any other things like that sort of habits, routines that you, that you, that you use, that you follow? Gosh, where did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> there was, Destination Delicious was the the site it was on. I think it was because a few years ago. Des because Destination Delicious was a friend that I met on a mindfulness course. So right. that must be why I said that in that particular interview. I was like, gosh, I said that. I don't remember saying that, but I obviously said it in that interview. I was obviously appealing to her readers clearly. Um, yeah, but no, yeah. I mean, I went on a I went on an eight week mindfulness course. Did not not full eight weeks. You do once a week for eight weeks, and I met her on that and. Um, yeah, that was a that was a, a, a nice eye opener for me because I, I think when you're the kind of personality that I am, which is like I said, an idea factory, working at a hundred miles an hour all the time, it's very hard to just stop. And in my twenties, I certainly had absolutely no ability to stop. I was like just a machine. I would work ridiculous hours. I'd be working till news at ten most nights, seventeen hour days. I loved it, but I didn't know how to stop. And um, I'm much better at that now. Like I know if I sit here today and I work a 12 hour day or I work a 10 hour day, the output is going to be very, very, uh, very, very similar. So what's the point in working a 12 hour day when I can work a 10 hour day? And I'm much better at that now. Um, and I, I think, I suppose that when it comes to things like mindfulness and meditation, that just gives you that breath and that time to stop and reflect and actually not thinking about work and not thinking about new ideas is far is just as valuable as when you're thinking about ideas because if you're thinking about ideas non-stop they're going to be rubbish probably i remember the editor at itv news when i was there she always said um, she'd rather hear 15 ideas of which 14 are crap and one is a really, really, really strong idea for a story than to not hear those other ideas because you might never get to that one idea that's really, really good. And I'm a bit like that. Again, I probably uh, knee-jerk react to some things. Sometimes I probably rush into things without necessarily doing all the due diligence. I'm probably not quite as strategic as I should be, but it hasn't stabbed me in bad stead. And I haven't made a load of catastrophic decisions as a result. And actually, I've had some really eureka moments and great ideas from just cracking on with things rather than sitting there. Like, why, why bother sitting there for something quite trivial 
and working through all the possibilities of how this might work or might not work over you know, several weeks or several months. Why not just try it and then iterate it? And if it yeah. works, it works. And if it doesn't work, then stop. And you spent far less time doing it. Yeah, if it, if it, that feels like a bit of a recurring theme from a lot of the things that you're saying, and it and it and it lines up with something I've heard a lot of people saying on other you know podcasts and things that I've been been reading, listening to, uh, where they have this phrase of fire, ready, aim, and it basically is like just do the thing, start doing it, make move, like but take the first step, and then you can sort of sort out little bits, correct the path slightly later on, but if you don't just if you don't go for it, then none of the other stuff kind of comes out. And again, like you said, you just end up doing a lot of posturing without without really making progress. Oh totally. And I I, I think that fire ready aim is a, gr- a great analogy to use for I'm gonna use that in future interviews Tom. You'll, you'll find <laughs> yeah, it quoted in it. some broadsheet newspaper in a few months' hey, time. Hey, absolutely. As long as you reference me and link to me, that's <laughs> absolutely fine. Uh, <laughs> so to, as, to try and start bringing, bringing things to a close then. So tell us, um, tell us about the future for the business then. What, what, what's on the radar? What's, what's kind of the plan? How would you like to see it develop in the next few years? Look, very candidly, we have to rebuild the business. Every travel business has to do that over the, the next few months. It won't be as simple as everything bouncing back. You can't just expect to go back to pre-pandemic levels uh, overnight that's going to take time my predictions are that um, hopefully by summer 2022 our traffic on travel gay will be back if not better than where it was already we we redesigned the whole website during the pandemic and that has uh, will have a, a natural uplift just from doing that um, but yeah I, I'm not sitting here and thinking everything's going to be smooth sailing over the, the coming months and, and, and probably not the next 18 months to be honest with you I think you know there's still a, a long way to go having said that travel is resilient and travel will bounce back and you can already see the pent-up demand that's out there in uh, people wanting to get away so I, I think that will that will come alongside that Clearly, Travel Gay has got massive potential. We're going to look at designing an app, launching an app. We're looking at bringing our own booking engine in-house so that we are doing and fulfilling all the bookings on Travel Gay ourselves. At the moment, uh, it's all fulfilled via affiliate partners on Travel Gay, at least. Um, so people click out to booking.com or Agoda or wherever. Uh, and we obviously just see a commission for that. Obviously, travel is very built into what we do as a group of businesses so we know how to run booking engines and that kind of stuff so that's the next step but it's obviously quite a big tech project uh, and I, I very much look at travel gear as a tech business rather than a travel business you know it, it, it is a tech business it's a huge community um, that, that has a lot of traffic and it uses travel as its lens um, so, and the other thing is, is travel getting out of office, whilst companion businesses are very different businesses. So out of office as a luxury tour operator will continue to scale, but it's, um, you know, it's got a ceiling on it. There's, a, there's an addressable audience and it's got a ceiling on it. Travel Gay has no ceiling really in terms of being global, like being able to permeate every single corner of the globe with new content, new travel advice, new partnerships with businesses and you know we're really big on our partnerships with businesses now before we took over the the site um every business was listed on there free of charge and i said hold on a minute like we're spending a lot of company time and money to make sure that all these other businesses around the globe have an up-to-date listing on our site well can we not just at least partner with them and get a little bit of revenue from them for taking the t- you know people forget 
we're a commercial business at the end of the day. Right? And I think especially in the LGBT world, particularly, people expect you to be doing it from a completely altruistic point of view. And yes, I want to improve LGBT rights globally. Yes, I want to see barriers and borders break down. I want to see a reduction in discrimination. But I also want to build a successful commercial enterprise in the process. And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And if we can continue to scale that and we can have um, Joe Bloggs, who runs a bar in Bali, paying us 20, 30 quid a month to have his bar listed on there, we know we're going to guarantee him people are going to once travel rebounds come into his bar, it's a good return on investment for him. And for us, it gives us the incentive to really make sure that Joe Bloggs' bar in Bali is really well listed, has got really good SEO value for his own business. We know we come up number one when you Google Bali gay bars. So it's better for him to invest from his perspective in us and making sure he's got a good listing on our page because we're going to be the ones getting the traffic, not him spending thousands, thousands of pounds on his own bars website uh, in that destination. So loads we can do, loads of revenue streams that we can open up. And that's really the focus for the next couple of years. Nice. And if you were to give a piece of advice or, you know, a few bits of advice to someone who was thinking of starting their own travel business, what would you, what would you say? Look, you've got a great opportunity right now. You can, you can, things are going to be done differently in every industry, right? I don't believe that we're just going to go back into working, playing, acting the same uh, post-pandemic. I think it's changed everyone, uh, whether that's in uh, at a micro level or a macro level. And um, I would say again, just just try. There's no harm in trying. Um, and if it's the right decision at the time, then it's the right decision. And it might not work out. My businesses still might not work out. That's okay. Like, but at least I'm making uh, progress and going forward and going in that direction. If I have to suddenly make a decision down the line to change career because everything's gone wrong and doesn't look like it's going that way, fingers crossed. But if I did, I'd be okay with that too. And you have to just, you know, not not overthink things. Don't worry about stuff. Just crack on because it's might work out really well for you yeah like it like it anything else any final thoughts that you'd like to share with people who are listening um thank you for listening i guess i mean i don't know why uh, anyone would want to take my advice but hopefully there's some nuggets in there that uh, are useful to people uh, and they found useful i think you know i'm a big believer in just being a sponge as well i've said that a few times in this interview just like sap like sucking up ideas from wherever you can get them, talk to people, listen to people, communicate with people, because you never know when that conversation you have might turn into something that sparks an idea in you. And I've had loads of conversations where it's sparked an idea in me and that impulse in me has gone, oh, let's try that. Um, it might have even been that you said, oh, let's do a podcast. I'm like, why don't I turn the travel game into into a podcast? Like, that's a great idea. So, like, you know, it might be us even having this conversation that gave, I don't know if it was, I can't remember, but it might have been the, that that gave me the spark and the nugget to, to, to do that. And why not? Like, why not? What's it? It's not going to, it's not going to damage my brand. It might help my brand. So give it a go. Yeah. Very nice. Listen, loved it. Thanks, Darren. So, like, yeah, loads of really interesting things in there. Um, who and well, sorry, where should people go to, to find you to find to find the business? Uh, Outofoffice.com and travelgay.com. Tremendous. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for sharing. And Thanks for having me. Speak to you soon. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for listening.
I hope you enjoyed that one. Darren's a really great guy and he's done some really impressive things with Out of Office in particular. So I hope the stories there will provide you with some inspiration for those of you that are in similar situations or dreaming of setting up your own business. If you'd like to hear more from Darren, then head to outofoffice.com, travelgay.com, or you can follow him at dasburn on Instagram. That's D-A-Z-B-U-R-N. Go to seotravel.co.uk forward slash Darren hyphen burn for all the show notes or to watch the video of the conversation or to seotravel.co.uk forward slash podcast for other episodes where you can get lots of other insight too. If you're a travel company looking for marketing support from people who really care about your success, then please do get in touch at seotravel.co.uk and we'd love to hear from you. You can also read more about our 100% project there, which outlines how we give all the profit we make from the business to educational charities, both at home and around the world. We'd love your support in spreading the word about that so we can help those charities that we're partnered with as much as possible. If you enjoyed the show, it would be fantastic if you could review the show on iTunes and share what your favourite bits were there. Subscribe to it as well, and it would be fantastic if you could share it with at least one person you know who you think could benefit from the episode and the insight that Darren uh, gave in, the, in that podcast. I'd love to hear from you and find out what you enjoyed so we can continue to bring more content like this your way that you'll find entertaining and helpful. My email is tom at seotravel.co.uk and I'd love to hear from you either about the podcast or anything else that might be of interest. We've got more fantastic guests coming up, so stay tuned for future episodes. And when you subscribe, you'll get notified whenever we release new episodes so that you can be one step ahead of the game. If you haven't already, please do go and listen to the first episode that we released with Gavin Bates. Gavin shares some pretty incredible stories there uh, and lots of amazing insight for, for how to run a travel business and, and tie that in with with doing fantastic things with your with your life and your work as well. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening and until next time, happy travels.